My name is Michelle Bachman. I stand here in the midst of many friends and many family members to announce formally my candidacy for President of the United States. Welcome to It's All Politics from NPR News. I'm Ron Elliott. And I'm Ken Rudin. And Ken, we're, we're having a little fun this week. Well, uh, we're celebrating the second anniversary of President Michelle Bachman's uh, administration. Uh, second anniversary? She would have only taken the oath of office in January. No, it was a military coup. I understand. Yeah. I understand. Well, and I do remember that military coup. Yeah. It was It was an a coochie, coochie coup. It was actually way back in August of 2011 that the Michelle Bachman presidential campaign reached its zenith, its apogee, at the Iowa Straw Poll. Now, this is held in Ames, Iowa, site of Iowa State University. And it's kind of a fundraising event for the Iowa State Party. And uh, people come and they pay a certain amount of money to get a ticket and they can cast a vote for their favorite candidate for president in the Republican Party. And she won. And what she really accomplished that people are not giving enough credit, she stopped once and for all Tim Pawlenty. She did. That's right. Tim Pawlenty was considered a serious candidate. He was out of the race within a a few days, I think, of Iowa Straw Poll, which shows how important the Iowa Straw Poll is. And only several months later, later with an R, Michelle Bachman finished sixth in the Iowa caucus. But basically what we're talking about between August 2011 and January 2012 was the entirety of Michelle Bachman's presidential effort. Uh, she was considered uh, among the leading contenders when she won the straw poll. She was dismissed as an also-ran when she finished last in the caucuses. But her, her legacy, I don't even, I don't even call it a legacy because she was not a powerhouse in the House. She was, of course, the chair of the Tea Party caucus, but she was not on top of legislation. She was not respected. She would often say false and often misleading or erroneous stuff, but she really wasn't a player. Well, she also had a pretty strong performance in several of the Republican candidates' debates. She did. During the run-up to the primary season, which, of course, included the straw poll in Iowa that we've already mentioned, during that summer and fall when she was getting out on stage with Tim Pawlenty, the former governor of Minnesota, and Mitt Romney, of course, and Rick Santorum, Newt Gingrich, the whole gang, she was the only woman, number one. She was one of the strongest voices, number two. She had some great lines pre-rehearsed, and she was pushing this one-term president recitation that the audience loved to get into. Just make no mistake about it. I want to announce tonight, President Obama is a one-term president. And she was getting a fair amount of altitude there for a while and showing up in the national polls and looking as though she might be kind of a inheritor of the Sarah Palin energy from 2008. And while she had a very, very close election in 2012, she only won by 4,300 votes. 1%. Uh, 1.2%. In a district Mitt Romney carried by 15%. That's exactly right. And while she already started putting up ads for her fifth term, she surprised everybody on Wednesday morning at 3.21 a.m. by releasing this video. The law limits anyone from serving as president of the United States for more than eight years. And in my opinion, well, eight years is also long enough for an individual to serve as a representative for a specific congressional district. Be assured, my decision was not in any way influenced by any concerns about my being reelected to Congress. I've always in the past defeated candidates who are capable, qualified, and well-funded. And I have every confidence that if I ran, I would again defeat the individual who I defeated last year who recently announced that he is once again running. And rest assured, this decision was not impacted in any way 
by the recent inquiries into the activities of my former presidential campaign or my former presidential staff. Okay, let's break this down. In my opinion, eight years is long enough for any individual to serve in a specific congressional district. Right. That's why she was already campaigning, already spent money on the air to advertise campaign for a ninth and tenth year in Congress. I have every confidence that if I ran, I would again defeat the individual who I defeated last year who recently announced he is once again running. Yes. And he's probably a little bit disappointed at this point that he's going to have to run against an ordinary Republican. Oh, I'm sure the Democrats are devastated by this decision. And I think the Republicans I mean, are You mean more... that seriously? I do. I do. A, a, a moment of, of non-sarcasm. No, no. I let's, let's put a little frame around that. No, no, no. That was not in italics or quotation marks at all. I think you're quite right. They love running against her. And uh, the Republicans probably dodged a bullet here because I think that unless they have a very contentious primary with 15 candidates and some crazy person winds up with a nomination, the Republicans should keep this seat. I think they're better off without Michelle Bachman. And rest assured, this decision was not impacted in any way by the recent inquiries into the activities of my former presidential campaign or my former presidential staff. See, that's an important thing, too, because the Office of Congressional Ethics is looking into her fundraising uh, apparatus during her presidential campaign and whether some illegal payments were being made. She said this had nothing to do with her decision to drop out. One of her former staffers has uh, turned against her and is making accusations, and and that may be disgruntled former employee, no one knows, but it's a little hard not to be a tad distracted by something of that nature. But there's something about her. The fact is, it was the top political story of the day. Everybody was talking about her. Everybody seems to love talking about Michelle Bachman. I know she said in her statement that the liberal mainstream media will mock me and say that I'm retiring for other reasons. Ken, are we the liberal mainstream media? You and I? Yeah. I think we're more than that, Ron. Okay. But look, the, the inevitable comparison here, again, is to Sarah Palin. I mean, her career began at a time of, of, of some, or at least her presidential ambitions, began at a time of some fascination with Sarah Palin. They were both ambitions. elected at the same time. Sarah Palin and Michelle Bachman were first elected to governor and Congress, respectively, in 2006. And some people are going to see a parallel in the leaving of office in the sense that Sarah Palin didn't even want to finish out her term as governor after the unsuccessful campaign for vice president. And now we see Michelle Bachman also leaving her actual job to become a full-time political personality. Do we expect her to run for the Senate? There's a seat open in Minnesota just next year. Well, she did say she did say she hasn't ruled that out. And of course, I heard that from, from Democrats more than Republicans. We're talking about Al Franken's seat, and that's pretty remarkable that there's no solid Republican candidate running against him, considering the fact that he barely won. It was a recount that took months until we knew that Al Franken was the winner over Norm Coleman. But um, uh, I don't think she runs statewide. I think why go from a, a tough House race to a likely defeat for the Senate? But uh, I, don't, I don't know what she'll do, but I think she'll still be active in the Tea Party, and she could, you know, be a conservative, perhaps like whatever Jim DeMint is doing now in Heritage, she could do for the Tea Party. Well, okay, but let's pivot from the problems of a former presidential wannabe, a prospect, to the problems of the person who wound up in the office and is at this moment experiencing that second term looking about and saying, is this really what I wanted to come back here for another four years of? You've got the president trying to deal with the fallout still from Benghazi, although that's cooled off in the presence of other more recent controversies. You still have the questions raised about the IRS and its targeting of some conservative groups. Polling that's been uh, publicized this week uh, makes it 
clear that large majorities, 60, 65, even over 70 percent of Americans believe there should be some sort of special prosecutor uh, appointed to investigate what the IRS did. And of course, you've got the involvement of the Department of Justice in these subpoenas for telephone records from AP reporters and also their pursuit of a Fox News reporter, James Rosen, and his attempt to get people to leak information to him, calling him a potential co-conspirator in the release of federal information, a federal crime. Uh, all of these things are really roiling the waters for Barack Obama. So, Otter, this is ridiculous. What are we going to do? Road trip. Of course, we're not talking about the White House. We're talking about Animal House. Oh, yes. yes, yes the yes. other house. The other house, which is, could be considered the White House lately, given what's going on. But, of course, uh, the uh, president did escape to New Jersey. Uh, usually people tr- escape from New Jersey, but as I did. So he's, he was there with Governor Chris Christie at the Jersey Shore, looking at the aftermath months later of Hurricane Sandy. And the governor, who was up for re-election this year uh, and is heavily favored... Heavily not favored. As heavily, not as heavily as it used to be. Not as heavily. 40 pounds less heavily Exactly. Favored. This was, you know, in a very interesting moment in 2012 for Christie and Obama. Uh, this is around the time that Mitt Romney was trying to be part of the conversation late in the campaign. And, of course, Sandy wiped him off the front pages. And uh, Governor Christie gave... Obama, like a political hug. It wasn't a little, an actual hug, but it was a political hug that allowed Obama to say that I am bipartisan. I am the president. I am not a, the campaigner in chief. I am the commander in chief. And Christie said that himself of the president. He gave him props every chance he got. So, I mean, it helped Obama in 2012. It's certainly helped uh, Chris Christie in 2013. The question, of course, is whether it helps Christie in 2016. And, of course, the media have immediately taken this opportunity to brand this the bromance. Uh, Governor Christie and I just spent some time on the Point Pleasant boardwalk. Uh, I got a chance to see the world's tallest sandcastle being built. Uh, we played some touchdown fever. I got to say, Christy uh, got it in the tire the first try, although I did pay for his throws. I played a little frog bog, and, 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 and uh, Governor Christie's kids taught me the right technique for hitting the hammer to get those frogs in the buckets the way I was supposed to. Uh, and, of course, I met with folks who were still rebuilding after Sandy. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, oh yeah. P.S. After, oh, yeah. P.S. By, by the way. P.S. That, I'm throwing footballs and I'm, yeah. doing, I'm crossing the frog's neck bridge. I have no idea what he was talking about. I have no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> sort of Hammering like this, frogs. Sort of like this, this, this podcast. <laughs> but you know something? While, while, we, while, while perhaps the president was getting away from the problems uh, uh, at the White House, it seems like Eric Holder was having the tougher week. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine Eric Holder saying, why can't I go to New Jersey for a few days? It's been a tough week for Eric Holder. Toward the end of the week, he tried to have in uh, bureau chiefs from a number of different news organizations to have an off-the-record discussion about, oh, media shield laws and other things that might improve the relationship. But then, of course, a number of the news organizations, including the New York Times and NPR, said, well, we don't think we should be having off-the-record discussions with you in the midst of these news stories unless, of course, you want to either put it on the record or if you want to let us bring our attorneys and discuss some of the legal issues that we raised in our letters of protest regarding these AP subpoenas and the James Rosen subpoena. You know, there is a history of controversial attorneys general, of course. We know about John Mitchell. We know about Alberto Gonzalez. We know about Ed Meese. We know about all this stuff. John Ashcroft. Uh, John Ashcroft, yes. Um, what's your prediction? Does, does Eric Holder survive? 
I think that Eric Holder, whose approval in terms of public opinion polls, uh, has dropped into the 20 to 30 range, which is a danger zone. Uh, most people don't really think about the attorney general too often, except in the situations where they become controversial, as you just said. Uh, I think he's reached the point where he's a clear liability for the president. And I think that the general expectation and among a lot of people in the administration was that Eric Holder wouldn't stick around for the whole second term or maybe for any of the second term and that perhaps he would have resigned by now, moved on into the rest of his legal career. And uh, most attorneys general don't serve past a full term, a full four-year term. It is not necessarily a great disruption of the normal course of things if he were to leave early in the second term, perhaps in the next several months. Uh, we're talking about the uncertain future of uh, Eric Holder, but we seem to have a certainty of who's going to be the new FBI director, and that's James Comey. And, I mean, you don't think of heroic actions in, in any administration, but James Comey during the Bush administration in 2004 seemed to play a very heroic role. That's right. At a time when the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, was expanding its surveillance of a number of Americans in response, of course, to the war on terror, the 9-11 Without warrants, without a warrant. They were seeking warrantless searches and powers that they had not previously had. And they went to Attorney General John Ashcroft to try to get that approval. He was in the hospital at the time. James Comey got there first, this is, dashing up the this stairs. Is like, this is like a spy novel. This is great. I mean, he, Comey found out that both the White House counsel, Alberto Gonzalez, and the chief of staff, Andy Card, were going to visit Ashcroft in the hospital to get him to okay this warrantless interrogations. Comey beat them to the hospital and told them what was going on. And uh, this was just an amazing thing where you always think of politics first in Washington. This was an example of not putting politics first. Comey is somebody who has taken seriously not only the war on terror, which was obviously the primary concern during those years, but also the rule of law, the role of doing things by regular order. So he has been something of a hero to a certain progressive element, if you will, uh, in American politics. It's not even progressive. But, it's but, but let's remember. law abiding. Let's understand, though, that this is a Republican, yep. James Comey. Yep. Uh, he gave money to John McCain's campaign against Barack Obama in 2008, did the same for Mitt Romney four years later. And he has, since he had left the government with the ending of the Bush administration, uh, been working as a lawyer for a hedge fund. This is basically a Republican figure who had a place in a Republican administration. So a certain number of people now, those same progressives who might have seen him as a hero in the last administration now step back and say, what, there aren't any Democrats who wanted this job? One reason they're reaching out in part to, to James Comey is because the woman who had been thought to be on track to be the first woman director of the FBI, Lisa Monaco, who had been an aide to the current FBI director, Robert Mueller, uh, has been given a new assignment in the last couple of weeks and taken out of contention for FBI director. Well, of course, she was part of the group in the administration who either altered or attempted to alter the famous talking points uh, regarding the responsibility for Benghazi. And, of course, had she been the nominee, the Republicans would have had another excuse to, let's talk about Benghazi all over again. Yeah. And another person who was thought to be on that list was Mike Rogers, the congressman from Michigan, and now with him obviously being bypassed. Now Rogers may be deciding whether to run for the Senate seat that Carl Levin's giving up. 
always a lot of political implications around something like this. Uh, the president has not actually officially nominated James Comey as of the recording of this podcast. We expect the announcement to come fairly shortly. Uh, it was first reported by uh, our correspondent on the Justice Department, Kerry Johnson, on NPR. You know, we were talking about the possibility or the likelihood of the Republicans trying to bring back Benghazi as a talking point. That perhaps was one of the reasons we saw Bob Dole on Fox News last weekend really despairing at the state of the Republican Party. I think they ought to put a sign on the National Committee doors that says close for repairs until New Year's Day next year and spend that time going over ideas and positive agendas. It's interesting. Bob Dole obviously does not sound like the Bob Dole we remember. He's nearly 90 years old, yeah. But actually, I'm listening to that. My heart is breaking a little bit because you always think of Dole as wise guy and... and, Hard, tough guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was a tough guy. If there was ever a tough guy... Uh, somebody who spent years yeah. after World War II recovering from his grievous wounds in VA hospitals and had literally dozens of operations and dealt with pain and has dealt with pain his whole life. And now, you know, for people to talk about him as having been soft somehow, yeah. for him not having been uh, tough enough with the Democrats, it strikes me as, as being a real misperception, not only of him, but of how politics worked in his era and how perhaps politics will work again if we ever do get past the current impasse. Well, in fairness, when you think of the Dole years, when you think of the Nixon years and the Reagan years, the Republicans never had a majority in the House. I mean, back then, I mean, a lot of times the purpose of the Republicans in Congress were to try to stop as many Democratic initiatives as they could. They didn't have the kind of power that you see now, certainly in the House, and even in the Senate now needing 60 votes to pass anything. All right, but when people like Dole say the Republican Party should be closed for repairs, or you hear people say the Republican Party is on the ropes... I can see why that grates on the ear of a Republican leader in Congress today when you see that they have not only a strong majority in the House, but every prospect of holding that strong majority through this decade and an excellent chance of taking the majority in the Senate in the 2014 elections. It's, It's not a lead pipe cinch, but it is every chance that they can get there. And by 2016... If Hillary Clinton doesn't run for president or if she runs but is still carrying some kind of baggage that weakens her as a candidate, everything in American history says we'll have another eight-year pendulum swing that has ruled our presidential politics by and large for the last, say, century or so. And we will go back to a Republican president. They could be right back where they were with George W. Bush in 2005. Well, one person who used to be a proud card-carrying member of the Republican Party was Lincoln Chafee, uh, the former Republican senator for seven years from Rhode Island. His father died in 99. He was appointed to the seat. He was elected in 2000 and lost in 2006. He became an independent and ran was elected governor of Rhode Island in 2010 with almost President Obama's not endorsement, but Obama liked him so much that Obama Obama wouldn't endorse the Democratic nominee. This week we learned that uh, Governor Chafee has switched to the Democratic Party. He's going to run as a Democrat. And I thought that was kind of an odd decision in the fact that there are strong Democratic candidates there. The Democrats don't love him there. His numbers are really down. The state's economy is really hurting. Why not run again against the Democrats and Republicans and 
risk what Arlen Specter did by joining the Democratic Party when there are already strong Democrats in the race. I suspect he's doing it because he thinks he has a better shot this way of getting reelected. Although, of course, you know, the Chafee people will tell you, just like the Bachman people, that uh, no, 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 reelection carries no terrors. We feel we're doing fine. This is all about principle. This is all about doing the right thing. I find it hard to believe that if you're a governor of a state and you have been an independent already, you've already left your historic party, that you wouldn't make a calculation here based on your best shot at re-election. And as you say, his re-election is no longer by any means assured. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of 2014 elections, one big surprise in Nebraska. Uh, this is a, the Senate race where Mike Johans is retiring after one term. Dave Heineman, the governor, who is very popular, who is expected to run for that seat, announced last week that he's not going to run at all. He's not going to run for the Senate. Mike Johans is quitting after one term. One thing that Nebraska has had over the years, switching back and forth between the parties to some degree, and of course this is the state that has the nonpartisan legislature, but in Nebraska people have understood you stayed in the Senate as long as you could and you try to build up some seniority and do the state some good. Why is Johans leaving after just six years? But, you know, other people have done that, too. Bob Kerry left after a short time. Chuck Hagel left after a, a relatively short term. I think one or two terms each for, the, for both of them. Um, you know what? We, we miss Roman Horusco. We don't talk about Roman Horusco as much. J.J. Exxon. Oh, J.J. Exxon. Carl what about Curtis? Ed Zerinsky? <sighs> now, those were Nebraska senators. Well, Ed Zerinsky died in office. That's why he didn't serve longer. But well, Carl it, Curtis. All right, so he had an easy explanation. Yeah. Some of these other guys have some explaining to do. Here's a question for you, Ken. Uh, aside from Mark Sanford's, shall we say, reasonably well-noticed re-election to the House, what other special elections for congressional seats do we have in 2013? That's a very good question because next Tuesday uh, in Missouri's 8th Congressional District is the one where uh, Joanne Emerson resigned to become a lobbyist. Um, nobody is paying attention to this. I think the reason nobody's paying attention to it is because it's solidly Republican. Oh, you think that's solidly Republican? Is this not... The district that includes Cape Girardeau, Missouri, yes, that's correct. which is, of course, the hometown of Rush Limbaugh. Well, and the Republicans have held this seat since Bill Emerson won it in 1980. Previous um, to that, it was always held by Democrats and was. known as Little Dixie. That's true. It's also the birthplace of Harry S. Truman, who is known for being from Independence, Missouri, on the other side of the state, but he was actually born in this district. Uh, Jason Smith is a state legislator who is likely to win this. He's a Republican. The Republicans have held the seat since 1981. Jason Smith was in the news only because Sarah Palin announced she's endorsing him with a $5,000 contribution. But this is, you know, a big Romney district, uh, a solid Republican district. But nobody's paying attention to it because it's safe for one party. Just like Joe Bonner, the Republican from Mobile, Alabama, announced he's going to leave Congress in August to join the University of Alabama. Uh, nobody's paying attention to that special election either because, again, that is a solidly Republican district. Okay, and we want to clear up any confusion that we may have created or that may exist out there. This Jason Smith, who will be elected, we believe, next Tuesday to Congress from the southeastern district of Missouri, is not the same Jason Smith who plays offensive tackle for the New Orleans Saints. That is a different... Jason Smith. I wonder which Wichita Lyman you were talking about. And that's it for this week's political podcast. You can follow NPR's political coverage at npr.org slash politics. I'm Ron Elving. And I'm Ken Rudin. The podcast is produced by Bracton Booker and edited by Kathy Shaw. Join us again next week, won't you, for It's All Politics from NPR. And I need you more than won't you. And I want you for all time And the witch
Kirche Taulanen is still on the 